a highly motivated mom with a punk rock aesthetic, didn't quite fit into the tiny town of Torrington, Wyoming. Known for her history of experiencing addiction and mental health issues, when Renee was reported missing in 2004, her case was a top priority. This is the story of Renee Diane Jurgen. I'm Renee Nelson, and this is Unsolved Wyoming. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining me for Renee's case. Renee's case is the oldest case I'm covering. She was last seen August 10th, 2004, making next month 18 years since she was last seen by her children and fiancé, Josh Minter. I'm not sure if it's the shared name or that this case is going on almost two decades of being unsolved, but Renee's story is haunting. And what you might gather, there are some details that cannot be discussed, so it feels like some of the interviews talk around certain aspects surrounding the day Renee went missing. For this episode, I interviewed Jess Oaks, a dedicated acquaintance, Angelina Shimmer, Renee's daughter, Agent Hansen, head of DCI's cold case unit, and an unnamed source who grew up with Renee. As always, I have Desiree Tinoco with the Missing People update, so be sure to stay tuned. My first segment is with Renee's youngest daughter, Angelina, also known as Angel. This interview is short, but powerful. Well, if she went missing in, what, 2004, I was probably three at the time. And what do you remember about your mom? Um, honestly, not a whole lot. If it wasn't for pictures, I wouldn't remember her face. Um, I don't really remember what she sounded like. I remember, like, bits and pieces. Like, I remember the fire that we had went through. Like, we had just gotten back from the store. And I remember sitting in the back seat with my brother. And, um, like, my mom was in the front crying. And my sister was crying. And I remember just crying because I was scared that my mom was crying. You know, um, I remember the day that we moved into our new house and the coloring books that I had and just little bits like that. What would you like listeners to know about your mom? Um, I guess growing up, I was told a lot of really negative things about my mom from my dad. But after getting to know her side of the family, um, you know, you'll you'll hear that she struggled with addiction really bad, and you'll hear hear that she would come and go all the time. But there was a point when she had decided to kind of clean up and get her act together for us and really wanted to build a family, and that's what she was working on at the time that she had gone missing. Wow. And so... Because, again, I'm kind of working off of a couple of different timelines here, you know, from what Jess has told me and, and you know, uh, some articles and things of that nature. And so 
from what I understand is that she had to get clean and sober in order to gain custody of you kids back. Yeah, there was a point when um, we had been taken by CPS and landed in foster care for the first time. And um, I guess that took a really big toll on her. And uh, like, as far as I know, that was kind of her starting point to her walk of sobriety. Wow. How long had she been sober when she went missing? Longer than a year, I'm sure. Um, Her mom used to tell me all the time that they would talk about how she would really miss using, but how she would, you know, kind of just stay strong. Can you tell us a little bit more about your mom's background? Do you, is there like other things that you want us to know? You want listeners to know about her? Like you said, you, you would hear a lot of negative things, you know, from your dad, but what were some of the positive things that your mom's side of the family shared about her? I was always told from her side of the family, her mom, especially about like what a beautiful person she was, you know, she was very artistic and she was very compassionate. I was told that at one point she had become a nurse or a CNA. Um, she just cared. She cared a lot about other people and other people's well-being. Um, and that wasn't just inside the family. That was outside of the family as well. You know, I was always told about how she was trying to help when she could and where she could. That's huge. And so are you the youngest of her children? I'm not actually the youngest. Um, My siblings and I have a younger brother that unfortunately none of us are able to contact. Okay, and that is uh, the son that she had with Josh, correct? Yeah. Okay, okay. And so you haven't met him or spoken to him um, beyond when your mom went missing? No, as soon as she went missing, he basically like packed all of us up and sent us away. Wow. Wow, that's that's hard. I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. I, I mean, I don't remember a lot of it, so it doesn't really affect me the same way it would probably other people, but right. I've never really had any hard feelings about that part. Right. And how are your siblings doing? How are your other siblings? Um besides the the youngest one that you don't know, how are your older siblings? Um well, unfortunately, my oldest sibling, Mariah, Um, she died she had had a seizure and I guess during that seizure like had a heart attack or some form of heart problem and um, she like passed away because of it oh wow Um, my older brother Jonathan you know we don't talk very often but upon occasion we'll you know message each other like hi how's it going how you doing and what's Jonathan up to these days Probably traveling. You know, you can never catch that boy in the same spot for very long. Yeah, that's exciting. Good. Good. And and what are you up to these days, Angel? Um, well, I had gone to Job Corps for um, heavy equipment mechanicking. And I currently live on a little reservation in Montana. And... Um, have kind of gotten my foot back in the door with mechanicking. Wow, that's amazing. Good for you. You don't hear a ton about women in mechanicking, much less heavy equipment mechanicking. Yeah, it 
it was a lot of fun. It's it's still kind of a learning experience. There's not as much that I thought that I knew, but I learned something new every day. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, I I can't imagine what it's like to kind of have this weird missing information for you, you know, and not knowing, you know, the circumstances around your mother going missing. How does that affect you every day? At first, it didn't really bother me. Um, You know, I was just always, you know, I grew up with a foster mom, and then I grew up with a, a new mom and a new mom. And, you know, at first, I didn't really think about it. But I don't know, it's like the older that I get, uh, the more like, things just don't make sense. Like, I don't know why she would work so hard to get us all back and then just leave you know that's what everybody says is that she just left but there's no way that she could have just done that right and so are you being updated with any of the stuff going on with her case as as things you know come out or turn up oh yeah just as just has done a super awesome job on keeping me updated on that you know she's always given me new information and we chit chat sometimes. It's been super helpful. Yeah, she's in a wealth of information. She's incredible. Oh yeah. Oh so, yes. And the the only thing that I can keep thinking is that your mom just must have been such an incredible person to make such an impact on on Jess because they didn't know each other very long. And so, you know, for her to kind of decide to keep, you know, on this investigation and kind of carry the torch and finding justice for your mom, you know, or finding answers about your mom, she must have been incredibly special to make that type of impact. Yeah, I would I would like to think that she probably was. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Angel, is there anything else that you want listeners to know about your mom? Um, probably not so much about my mom, but about how wrong she was done when it came to her disappearance, um, and how wrong, honestly, my, myself and my siblings were done and the whole family, uh, you know, when she first was reported missing, they basically told my grandma that. They weren't going to do anything about it and you know that she went she left all the time and she was probably off like doing drugs or whatever and they weren't really going to look into it and of course you know like we had family that was willing to take us and CPS wasn't willing to allow that to happen and um, my family was split up you know my sister was adopted by a family thank goodness but um my brother was left in foster care his whole life and I like my dad had gained custody and unfortunately like my dad was very abusive you know I don't even I can't imagine what my siblings grew up with but I know what I grew up with and it was not something that a child should have to go through you know and you know what about what about her siblings like my uncles were very much so affected by it you know her mom was affected by it it basically broke up a whole family that just has not been able to piece themselves back together folks this next segment is with jess oaks jess is nothing short of incredible she's been a dedicated point person keeping renee's case out there so people don't forget about her 
Jess was actually one of the first people to reach out to me when she heard about the podcast. Y'all, if I ever go missing, please call Jess. You'll understand why. And so you are a friend of Renee's. And so tell us how you met Renee. Um, in 2003, I was working at a restaurant that's um, closed down now in Goshen County. And my boss approached me and said, hey, you're going to have help back here, but you got a trainer. Um, and in walked Renee. And uh, we, we pretty much hit it off just because there was a lot of similarities. We were both um, very young parents. And so that made easy conversation. Excellent. Approximately how long did you know Renee? It was only a few short months. Um, the business, like I said, closed down um, due to a death in the family. And so after that, we pretty much had lost touch. Um, but we spent a good three, three months, four months working side by side together. One of the things that you mentioned in the report that you shared with me, this amazing in-depth report that I just, you know, got lost in. I found myself like reading it all in one sitting with a cup of tea. And so, but one of the things that you mentioned was that obviously because you both were, you know, young um, parents and that was your focus, you didn't really get to spend a ton of time together outside of work. But when you did, you typically did so with your children. Well, we didn't so so much with our children. We worked at a, a restaurant that didn't close until it was dark and past our kids' bedtime. And okay. there were a few occasions where Renee and I would um, meet up after work hours and go visit some of my friends because it appeared that she didn't have too many local friends. Um, and so we would usually just go spend our time with someone that I knew or um, drive around, you know, just do things that silly people our age at that time used to do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. What can you tell me about Renee in terms of, well, let me backtrack. I think what's so fascinating about getting into this case and especially, you know, with you is that you didn't know Renee only a short amount of period of time and you kind of become this de facto her like champion so to speak in in terms of her case what about her made you like want to sort of pursue you know kind of like every not leaving a stone unturned so to speak the injustice of the entire case if you want to know the truth is what's kept me um hook line and sinker into it um you know don't get me wrong there, there are four beautiful children that would like answers. Um, they believe that their mother just abandoned them and that she couldn't handle being a parent and just ran off. I would <coughs> never want my children personally to, to ever feel that. And so I was moved not only knowing Renee for such a short time, but also knowing the fact that she was a mom. And first and foremost, that was her job title. And to see these kids displaced, torn apart from their family um, in various different foster homes because none of them, sadly, were kept together after she disappeared. And <clears throat> providing them with some sort of closure, some sort of comfort, some sort of justice. And, you know, I also look at the fact that I am a single woman living in Goshen County. And if I disappear tomorrow, who's going to come after me? 
who's going to be asking the questions? Because this is nothing more than more questions. You feel like you get one answered, and then you have 50 more that pop up just from that one question. This is definitely um, a case that as I, I find myself thinking about as I'm washing the dishes or vacuuming, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I start thinking about your report or, you know, and, you know, just random, you know, facts about it that just don't quite add up or quite make sense. And so this is definitely one of those cases that grips you. And so we'll get into that because I think it's really important for listeners and, and you know, for a couple of reasons, you point on something I think that's really critical in terms of if I go missing, who comes and looks for me, right? Posing that question. And, you know, we hope it's, you know, a loved one, but if we're a single mom or a single parent, you know, who is our backup for our children? You know, who's that, who's that safety net? Exactly. Really scary really scary scary situation so super important tell me about how you learned about Renee's disappearance I was actually a journalist um, at my local newspaper and um, I only covered the agriculture end of the world so I didn't so much get into community awareness or public awareness any of that Um, you know I, I pretty much lived dream wrote agriculture and that was it And um, I happened to have some free time one day and picked up a newspaper and it had a picture of Renee on it. And the story was written by one of our our string writers, which is just an individual who contributes information. And um, I was blown away because, you know, not only did I, I know this individual that was plastered all over the front page of the paper, you know, with the title missing, um, but I couldn't understand how come it had taken as long as it did. I can't give you an exact date um, of when that article came out, but it was much after her disappearance than I think what most people realize. Uh, it was at least five months after she disappeared before there was an article, anything ever publicly about her. Wow. Wow. That is a big gap. Yeah. I had the opportunity to speak to Angel, Renee's youngest, not youngest daughter, but second youngest uh, child. And and she did explain that one of the things that she wants people to know is just how the case was mishandled, you know, that, you know, her being reported missing wasn't taken very seriously at the beginning. And, uh, you know, was much like she she left on her own accord. You know, she's, you know, most likely off using, um, which is not uncommon when we find out a victim um, or, you know, a potential missing person has a history of experiencing uh, drug abuse. So not uncommon at all. So one of the so let's get into some of the facts surrounding the night that Renee disappeared. Can you walk us through what you know? From what I've been able to collect with everyone I've spoken to, um, I've had the opportunity of visiting with all of Renee's children except for her youngest and a lot of information from the kids themselves. Granted, they were very young individuals, but um, a child's mind remembers so much even, even before birth. Our minds are developing and remembering memories that, of course, when we're born, we forget. 
store somewhere else for needed time. Um, and so some of the, the details that the children had mentioned were that Renee and her boyfriend were, they got into an argument. Um, there was a speculation that it was over money because Renee and the boyfriend were actually going to be getting married um, a short time after the day she disappeared. So there was an argument and um, the children, one of them can actually remember waking up and asking uh, where their mother was. And the boyfriend told the child that the mother just disappeared. She just left. And that's been pretty much the consensus around her disappearance. There's very little information that is uh, consistent. It depends upon which news article you read to get the information. Um, because there's a lot of information regarding the boyfriend just saying, uh, she's a big girl, she can handle herself. And that's pretty much the impression that the investigators had with Renee's um, missing persons report that was filed by her mother. Wow. And so, so essentially her mom is the one who, who filed a missing persons report. And when her boyfriend was questioned and, and, and technically I guess fiance, right. When her fiance was questioned, he just claims that she just up and left. Yes. No, no recourse. No, this is how you get a hold of me and left four children behind one, which is biologically the fiance's child. And so displacing the other three children. That's correct. And, you know, I mean, he had, he had said multiple different things. I've never seen a copy of the police report to know exactly what he told the investigators, mm -hmm. but in different news articles, he's quoted saying that um, she left town to go tattoo some bikers. Now, Renee was a tattoo apprentice and um, she was a very talented artist. And so, you know, that thought doesn't necessarily, um, escape my mind, but I don't understand why she would have, quote, left her foot, why um, her car would have been found 45 miles from Torrington, abandoned at a rest stop. There's just a lot of unanswered questions. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So there, let's go there next. So, so after we, supposedly at the day, the last time that Renee is seen by her boyfriend, the one who's, or fiance, who says, you know, she's a big girl, she can handle herself. And it sounds pretty quickly after she left, he started displacing the children as well as getting rid of her things. Yes. When was her car discovered? You know, everything is, is really hazy. Um, mm -hmm. from, from what I've been able to gather, um, I've been fortunate enough that I know quite a few people in the area um, that are willing to actually talk about the case and share their information. <laughs> Uh, from my information that I received, the car was actually found at the rest stop on the 10th of August, and it was called in to dispatch because the vehicle had evidence of arson. Uh, I can't tell you if it was on, near, or around, but there was some kind of speculation where the person who called dispatch said, it looks like someone has tried to set it on fire. Um, Renee's house had caught fire about seven months before she disappeared. 
And so there's a lot of speculation saying that, you know, whatever was found in the vehicle was stuff that she salvaged from the house fire. Um, but again, without seeing police reports, without, you know, talking to someone of authority about that information, I don't have anything completely concrete. That's one of those points to me that gets my brain reeling kind of in the middle of a, a mindless task where I, you know, I turn and I think about Renee and her disappearance is that those are two incredibly big life events, right? And not, yeah. you know, and not common occurrences, you know, where your house catches on fire and burns down to the ground very closely to, uh, you know, the time that you, that you disappear. Yeah. And from what you have shared with me um, is that she, she did collect up insurance payout, correct? Um, that we know of, we haven't been able to get any of those records. Um, and that specific topic, I can't too much in okay. depth um, due to DCI's ongoing investigation. Okay. And so I guess that's a really, I guess that's a critical point to bring into is that DCI, which is the Division of Criminal Investigations here in the state of Wyoming, they are actively investigating Renee's case. Yes, finally, finally. Um, with the help of We Help the Missing, uh, we were finally able to get Torrington Police Department to transfer Renee's case to a higher authority. And we're hoping that we have a fresh set of eyes looking over Renee's case tirelessly. And we're hoping that we're going to end up getting somewhere with it. Absolutely. I think that's, that's all we can definitely, you know, kind of hope for, for Renee and, and you and obviously her children and, and her family. What other piece of the puzzle do you think is really critical to share with listeners um, who may be listening and, you know, are either familiar with the, the Goshen County area or, you know, have moved away from their sense and, you know, lived there during that time period that you think is really critical for people to to know about that could help, you know, shake, shake a memory loose? Well, honestly, Renee, this is a very loaded question for me because there's so much that I want to say. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, I think the biggest thing that people in this community need to be aware of is the injustice surrounding this. Um, that honestly has been my, my primary concern. How can an individual, a community member, disappear and no one care? It's been almost 18 years and I still run into people daily that say, oh, I've never even heard of her. Um, and, and that honestly, very eye-opening to me, you know, I, I realize we come from all different walks of life and some of us end up going down the wrong path and developing addictions. And some of us have closet addictions that we don't even, you know, we don't share. And I feel like people have labeled <coughs> Renee an addict. I feel like people have labeled Renee someone who struggles with her mental health, even though she does fit that mold. She is not that mold. And um, I think that if she would have been, we'll just say a socialite's wife, we wouldn't be here today. This case would already be solved. Right. How important it is to know who's in charge of what and uh, watch your election polls and make sure that you vote intelligently for the candidate that isn't a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. 
because I do feel that there is a lot of information that I just can't share with you um, on a this kind of platform um, right? that will hopefully come out in the wash and people will understand exactly why I'm saying that. Right. Absolutely. You touched on so many important things. We're not back in the 1950s where, you know, everybody was so invested in, you know, their local elections and, you know, and that was like a really specific event that everybody, you know, took pride in and exercising their civic duty right yeah and so as we've grown and we've become more individualized and we don't really think about the civic um, our civic duties or our community at large I think the lesson that I'm hearing from you is you never know when you're going to need these people to help you in the worst day of your life Right, right, right. And and you trust that these individuals are competent. And, right. um, you know, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be with just elected officials. You assume that the doctor who's operating on you next week is competent. You assume that the, the cook at the truck stop where you're eating breakfast is competent <coughs> to fulfill their duties. Absolutely. And um, it, it's unfortunate living in a small community because then oftentimes you develop what's called a good old boys club where secrets get swept under rugs and everybody's hushed for, for no good reason other than to save somebody else's public image. And, I, you know, I'm the type of person that if you make a mistake, you make amends. You own your mistake. You accept your responsibility and you do better. And um, unfortunately, that isn't what I've seen in Renee's case. And going back to that point that you made earlier, too, about Renee being a person who um, had a history of experiencing addiction, I think one of the points that I think is critical to let people know is that, you know, Renee, uh, at the point that we know of, you know, uh, was living a sober life and so and had gotten herself clean, you know, um, in order to uh, be a better or to be, you know, to be the mom that she wanted to be to her children. Right. So at the time of her disappearance, she wasn't uh, at the, at anybody knows of, you know, um, you know, uh, using drugs or experiencing addiction at that point. And, you know, everybody that I've, I've talked to um, locally that knew Renee during that time period, um, will attest to this exact same thing. Renee worked awfully hard to build her life back together because she did realize that she did make mistakes. And she worked very hard to get her children back. And part of getting her children is achieving sobriety. And um, of course, because it was in her past, now it follows her wherever she goes. And right. she's just another druggie who's probably strung out somewhere Um, I've heard countless stories of what people think has happened. A lot of it involving addiction. Drugs. Drugs and alcohol. So that's so disheartening to hear in terms of, you know, that we just make that quick judgment to write somebody off to, to, you know, oh, they're probably gone because of drugs and addiction. And so, you know, I just thank you, Jess, for taking the time out to, to speak about this. I think there's so many points that many people who probably don't talk about their own experiences can see themselves in this story. 
Well, and you know, regardless of the fact if she had an addiction to drugs and alcohol, and if she wasn't sober, she's still a human being. She's still somebody's mother. 100%. Yeah, she's still somebody's sister, somebody's daughter, you know, and and how can you just ignore this person standing in front of you? That's how I see it. Well, I, it definitely feels as though a person isn't the perfect victim, right? Yes. If they have any type of smudge in their background, then, you know, and we see this a lot with people who are experiencing addiction or that they're in sex work or, you know, have a marginalized identity or, you know, are in the LGBTQ community is that, well, you know, we're participating in risky behavior, you know, you're going to, you know, there could be, you know, some really big, obviously dangerous to that. And mm-hmm. to that, you know, I say, but that doesn't devalue that person any less. Right. We care less about that person as a result of whatever we perceive as good or bad behavior. Exactly. Exactly. I think that that's part of the reason why I am so, um, I don't know, adamant on finding closure because, you know, it, it's just unfortunate that things happened when they did. Um, you know, we're fortunate 18 years later and we have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have all of these really big social media networks that are amazing to share missing persons information. But when it's a missing person from almost 20 years ago, how can your tips be, you know, of value? How can any of that information be helpful? Because I can't remember what I ate for breakfast. How am I supposed to remember what happened, you know, 20 years ago? So I understand um, that, you know, it's unsettling. And I I feel for uh, Renee's kids. I really, truly do. And her siblings and her mom. um, I cannot imagine what it would be like to be that personally connected. Um, I've been fortunate enough to gain great relationships with some of her family members, including her kids. And um, they're a great bunch of people. So, you know, I, I guess I look at one of the things that I want to accomplish in my lifetime is providing them with some sense of closure. That's an amazing goal, Jess. And I, like I, I shared with you via text the other day is that, you know, Angela said not, had nothing but amazing things to say about you. And I think it brings her comfort knowing that you are working on her mom's case and are reaching out because you were the one who reached out to me. And, yeah. you know, when the podcast news launched and said, hey, have you heard about Renee Jurgen? <laughs> and so, you know, and, uh, you know, and I think that's really incredible. And so I hope if if I ever were in this type of situation that I have a Jess on my side. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess that's how I looked at it. I, I'm a firm believer in everybody needs somebody in their corner. And uh, sometimes you have to appear in that corner, even though the ring is empty, so to speak. Um, because, you know, I know for a fact, Renee and I, we share a special connection. Renee and I actually look alike, which is, is kind of a scary, scary thought once I finally put two and two together, which that mm-hmm. was a recent discovery. But, you know, I... I keep focused on what would I want someone to do for my kids? Would I want somebody to be there to hold my hand? And, you know, there's, there's several times that Angel and I, we've shared conversations back and forth about, uh, about Renee. 
And uh, one of the most difficult things that Angel said to me was, I want to know what my mom's voice sound like. I can't remember what she sounded like. And as a mother and as a daughter who's lost her mother, that hurt. So that's enough. This next segment is with someone who wished to remain anonymous. What she shares provides a rich picture of how Renee was treated even in her hometown. I grew up in Douglas and uh, I was part of the punk rock scene in, in central Wyoming and eastern Wyoming. And so I saw Renee a lot. I wouldn't say that we were friends. We definitely um, knew the same people and were part of the same crowd, though. And also just from being from Douglas, you know, you everybody knows the same people. You hear things. You see the same people all the time. And, uh, you know, like people would talk behind Renee's back, like just being in uh, a restaurant. One of the the things that older people in the community would call her as they would call her rainbow fright behind her back, um, just because she was just so, so beautiful, just such a gorgeous person. And there would, you know, there'd be comments like, oh, she'd be so pretty if she didn't have all that shit in her face and just awful, just, you know, just unkind things. And uh, it, this was during a time too, where uh, it was a big deal to have any kind of outward expression, much less in such an isolated place as Douglas, Wyoming. And it's not like there was uh, like even one or two people that are like, there was a crowd of people that dressed the way that Renee did. Like, it was Renee, <laughs> you know, and then whoever she was dating at the time, or maybe, you know, a couple of people from Casper, but she was really kind of the standout woman that expressed herself outwardly the way that she did. And people were not nice about it. Um, they were not nice to her at all. And then, of course, there was a lot of uh, stigma about her being a single mom and about her having so many kids. Um, people had a lot of opinions about her. And so uh, I, I wasn't surprised when um, there wasn't a lot of hustle or urgency to try to find her. And uh, it was actually like the first time that uh, I remember people being really concerned and like, what the hell is um, on message boards for the tattoo community and tattoo and body modification community. Uh, were very concerned about Renee because she had made a lot of friends throughout the United States um, that way. And that was the first time that people were like, what do you mean they're not looking for her? What, what do you mean they haven't found her? What do you mean? Like, there's not much investigation going on. This is just the end of the road. Like, so, yeah. That's so disheartening to hear. And, you know, I, I would say, Luckily, I, I was able to talk with Agent Hansen, who's the lead detective or the lead investigator for the cold case unit here in Wyoming that just started recently. And he definitely talks to that aspect of the lack of urgency being a sign of the times, right? And so, but there's still this nagging thing to me about it of that's not an excuse, though, right? No. Like 2020, <laughs> but, you know, recognizing like, oh, she was a little ahead of her time, so you know, she wasn't really accepted. It's still a community member that the police department failed to take seriously being reported missing. Yeah. And I'm sure that a lot of it was people didn't 
understand her as a person. They didn't understand her lifestyle and they saw her as an outsider and that there wasn't any urgency. And looking back in, in hindsight, it's very, uh, you know, just knowing everything that I know now, it's very uh, disheartening. and It's very sad seeing how differently, uh, you know, Amy Robechtel uh, had disappeared just a few years before Renee and how differently those cases were treated because she was uh, a different, you know, I'm not trying to despair, disparage her in any way, but just that uh, Amy Rowe was such a different type of community member than Renee and the vigils, the constant search parties that, and, you know, and there were similar ages. There were, there were all of these similarities, uh, you know, as far as demographics, other than, um, you know, one was a little bit more of a colorful character <laughs> and nobody looked for Renee. And right sad right well and so so you so you knew her from running around uh in similar groups and having kind of similar friends one of the things that I remember you mentioning to me last time that we spoke was you mentioned a story that you had heard secondhand about how she was treated during her labor yes and this is um this is reliable without, without blowing my source here. I can say that I, I know that this happened. Um, Renee was giving birth and I don't know which one of her kids she was having, but that she, um, I don't, I don't remember the particulars of how this came about, but she was giving birth very loudly and was disturbing other people that were in the birthing suite and that she was being threatened that if she didn't calm down or if she didn't quiet down, that they were going to press charges against her for disturbing the other people in the hospital, which is just horrific <laughs> because to me, that says, you know, she needed more pain management. She needed something. There was something, her need wasn't being met and who cares? Like, it's, you know, that's her moment. And for somebody to try to minimize her in that way is horrific, but it's also very unsurprising with just the way that she was treated. Um, you know, but I, it's also like, if you asked like a random person that's lived in Douglas for a long time, if they remember Renee, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they would tell you something about a tattoo that they saw on her or, you know, some kind of a vague memory because she did make so many impressions just because she was so different than everybody else. And so the things like that, but like she, I don't know, she was kind of the town scapegoat in a lot of ways, just because she was different and because she, she did things differently. Like uh, I heard a story one time, and again, this is a secondhand where she had, um, she was a teenager and she, the, the rainbow family was, um, was going through town as they do. Like they go the rainbow family, the rainbow tribe, or I don't, I don't remember what they're called, but they, they go and um, camp throughout, you know, the uh, Western United States. So you have like their little rally or something. And Renee was a kid and had taken off with them. And the person that was telling me this story was like, Oh my God, can you believe that? And I'm sitting there like, listen to it. I'm like, well, yeah, I can. <laughs> like there's nothing to do in Douglas. Like it's not that far fetched that like, a teenager that wants something besides, you know, what Wyoming has to offer would go and hang out with other people that they think are going to be like-minded. Like, 
yeah, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just sad that it, that was supposed to be like a shocking story to me or something. And it wasn't. Right. Well, I mean, one of our basic needs as human beings, right, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is to feel accepted and to feel a sense of belonging. And so if she wasn't getting those needs met in her current community, why, yeah, why would we be surprised that she went off with a different community to have that need fulfilled? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, I, I don't think that uh, anybody had, and I, you know, and again, I wasn't, I wasn't close to Renee. I don't want to like to over exaggerate like my how well I knew her or anything. And I do I you know, and I have heard some stories that are like, you know, there's good and there's light and darkness to everybody. And I'm sure that she's certainly had her her demons. But I wonder how much of that was exacerbated by just not having anybody to turn to. And as a person with very similar circumstances to hers that grew up in the same community, I know that um, I absolutely did not flourish until I left there. <laughs> so, um, right, yeah. small town, small rural towns for for people for certain people can be uh, very very uh, detrimental to to that to that thriving and to that you know. Um, success that people are looking to have and that belonging to have. So, so her case is, is based out of Torrington, you know, that she was reported missing out of Torrington. Do you know when she moved to Torrington, when she moved that way? You know, I actually, I have a very, very vague timeline just based on, because um, everything that I know about this is based on when Angel was born, because there was a little bit, and you know, and I, Renee, like, I, I don't want to, like, be quoted on this. <laughs> this is, like, wildly. This is just, like, as I remember it. Right. Um, so I worked with Angel's dad's mom. Like, I grew up with them and stuff. But um, so we didn't – there was a time where we weren't sure if Angel, like, actually existed, if it was, like, you know, if this was a real thing. And so – Renee went to Torrington sometime before Angel was born because we, but it had to be like sometime while she was pregnant with Angel. And so it had to be like right before that because we, Angel was born in Torrington and somebody who lived in Torrington that knew Chris was like, you know, she had your baby. <laughs> like, and that's where, um, because I was started hanging, I got back in contact with, um, with, Angel's grandma with Peggy like we started working together and we're close to get again about the time where like um, paternity tests and custody and all of that came into the picture and so um, that was about 2001 2002 and so it must have been right about there where things started to get really uh, interesting <laughs> so yeah that that was it, it must have been somewhere in that couple of year timeline. Got it. I think I think the reason why I wanted you to wanted to include your piece into this, you know, is, you know, obviously, you know, just kind of to give more background and and grounding to, you know, how Renee was treated within her community. And so the other question that I have, you know, you kind of discussed, you know, uh, the, the, the Amy Bechtel case and how it was going on at the same time as Renee was going missing, similarities in age, 
you know, uh, race, you know, so, you know, age, white women going missing at the same time. One of the things that I do know about Renee's circumstances and background is, and again, you know, could play into her treatment was she had a very complicated home life and family life. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And as far as I know, and again, uh, I, um, I can just tell you like what I know is that uh, her, her mom and her stepdad were acquaintances of my family and her mom was very candid with, with my family about her own struggles with mental health. And this was like before this is in the nineties. This was like when, uh, before there was any kind of destigmatization, like this was before bipolar was even a thing. This was when manic depression and, you know, like nobody talked about these things. And, uh, you know, and so this was a casual conversation, you know, my mom's meeting these people for the first time. And, you know, this woman she just met says, you know, I'm bipolar and I have these episodes and my mom's like, okay, cool. Like, what can I do to help? Or, you know, just trying to, to keep it light. And so, uh, and then there were just some, there was a lot of really, really rough behaviors. And then like looking back now, like, I remember when Renee went back to high school because you could go back to high school until you were 20 and Renee was 19 and went back to high school. And at this point she already like had kids and she was heavily tattooed and stuff. And it was also like, it was almost kind of like comical that she's like trying to like follow these school rules and the schedule and stuff. And she knew it too. Like we're, I remember like we, sat together at lunch and we were, you know, visiting and stuff. And she had just gotten a new tattoo and she like, you know, ripped half her shirt off to show me her tattoo. And we're, you know, laughing and visiting and stuff. And, um, but now I'm just thinking like, that's so much maturity. That's so much more like, even for like, you know, even though she was technically an adult, like that's so beyond that's, that's somebody who's like raised themselves. That's somebody who's very comfortable. Like just the fact that like, you know, you go back to high school to like mock the experience, you know, <laughs> like as, as like a rebellion, um, just the, like, she was already so far past that. Um, I'm, and I'm sure that just speaks to just, you know, being uh, somebody who was never a child. Like, right. I, I wouldn't be surprised to know that Renee was probably on her own her whole life. I know that she uh, was in and out of foster care a couple of times. Um, yeah, she she didn't have a chance, man. Like, uh, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm infinitely proud that, uh, that Angel is who Angel is. And it's amazing. Like right after you and I talked, I reached out to Angel and just said, I just want you to know I'm proud. <laughs> like, oh, you're awesome. A, and so, that's so sweet. yeah. That's awesome. Um, and so, so there is a current investigation that's happening, which you'll hear about in the in the episode that Agent Hansen, you know, re, you know, talks about. He doesn't go into details and doesn't go into, you know, what leads that they're currently working since it's, you know, considered now an active case again. He feels as though this case is going to be solved soon. He didn't give nice. me a timeline, but he did say soon. What do you think the outcome of this is? You know, I'm not sure, but I really hope that somebody can be accountable for something because Renee deserves closure. Her kids deserve closure. Everybody who cared about her deserves closure. And everybody else who 
something like this has happened to deserves closure. It's like, you know, uh, West Memphis three, where Damien Eccles said like the, the most shocking thing about what happened to us is that it happens to other people all the time. It's a common thing. And there are other Renee's out there. They're like, these cases need to be followed up on like there needs to be closure. She deserves this. She is a person. And, uh, I don't know. I still think about her. There's, she had a tattoo from shoulder to shoulder from the seven second song, not just boys fun. It's like a feminist anthem. Mm -hmm. And I think about her every time I hear that song and, um, yeah, she was a flawed person, but she was, she was a person. And, uh, I think about her and, uh, I hope that something happens to somebody. I, I think what's, to me really important about these cases having conclusion is like you said the other Renee's the other families who are waiting for the Renee's this gives them a little bit of hope right that it is a possibility that there can be a conclusion to you know this these sad stories or or these you know these stories that cause so much hurt and pain and and so I think that's what I really am hoping is you know this case does get solved there is a resolution and it's going to give hope to other folks too who are are waiting for similar things so thank you so much for taking time out and and chatting with me is there anything else that you want listeners to know about Renee or that you want to say in closing no that's pretty much it thank you so much for having me Renee and thank you so much for the work you're doing it's so important folks, this last segment is with AJ Hansen, and he provides an update on Renee's case. I have to say we had a really hard time connecting, and when we finally could, I had to do the recording in my car, because podcasting can happen anywhere, right? Please forgive the audio. Well, AJ Hansen, thank you so much for joining me. And we are talking about Renee Yergin's case. And goodness, I don't even know where to start. So I'm actually going to defer to you to start out about Renee's case. Right. I think it's important to to get this out of the way up front. Her case is an active, open investigation that the division is working. So there's a lot, and I mean a lot of things that I can't discuss with her case. Um, but I can tell you this, that her case is one of those that uh, a lot of agencies have had their hands somehow in it. They've worked it. A lot of law enforcement officers over the years have had their um Uh, this case file on their desk and they've been working it. And one of the things that I would like to, to tell you and and to share with everybody else that's listening to this, it's important to understand that Wyoming is such a rural community in terms of law enforcement, for the most part, agencies have such limited resources, limited personnel, limited budgets, and limited time to work cases that Oftentimes it's easy for a case to get um, sat down and not get visited very often. Uh, you know, if there's not a bunch of, of hot leads, so to speak, or fresh information, it just doesn't get worked at the level that it, it might deserve to be worked. Not because anyone doesn't want to work it, but because there's just not the availability of funds or time or personnel to work it. So with Renee's case, when that case came to us, we we looked at it and we decided that the Division of Criminal Investigation would take the case on 
and we would devote to it the same level of resources that we would devote to any of our other cold cases that we take on, which is really important to understand what that means. That means there's a team of investigators you know, led by one case agent who's, who's the point on that case, as well as support folks such as analysts and, and crime lab folks and biologists and everybody pitches in to get that case worked at the level that it should be worked. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think you said is really important is, again, lack of resources. But also one of the questions that I have to follow up with that is, especially with these more rural communities, is it also maybe a lack of experience or scope with certain aspects of cases? You know, so, you know, you hear this, you know, where a homicide happens, you know, in a in a little town and it's like, well, we never really had to investigate a homicide. So they call out an outside agency to help. Is it, do you think that sometimes that could be a factor in, in, in these cases and in, in rural areas as well as just kind of a lack of scope of experience? Absolutely. In fact, in Wyoming, that happens quite often, not with just homicides or other types of violent crimes like that, but the division gets called upon by local law enforcement agencies, the sheriff's office, the county uh, the county sheriff's office or the police department uh, for a multitude of different case types for the same reasons. They don't have the resources, they don't have the experiences, or oftentimes they have um, conflicts within their own department. And those conflicts are back to the beginning of this conversation where it's such a rural community. They don't, they don't want to work the case because maybe there's a conflict with someone involved in the case as an employee of the law enforcement agency. So they will call upon the division and ask us to look into the, some of those cases, just like in the cold case that we're talking about. That's that's excellent information. Thank you. And so and another question, and, and maybe this is obvious and, and I'm asking the obvious question, but so is a missing person's case that hasn't, you know, that has been, is going on decades now, does that does it always stay a missing persons case or does it because there's no leads fall into the cold case division? That's a, a tough question because that call is on a case by case basis. Okay. So it's still a missing persons case though, Renee, it's, it's always going to be uh, a missing persons case until we can prove otherwise, whether okay. the person is found or something else happens, you know, with the case and, and I, we don't like to talk about the something else because that's never a good ending either. Right. Right. So, um, but it's, it's still a missing person because we don't have a body. So we don't have a, a homicide. So, so we don't really want to call it a homicide case because we don't know what it is. We just know that in, in this one we're talking about in Renee's case, she's still a missing person. And we're still going to go ahead and work those leads like we would any other missing person case until we know otherwise. That's excellent information. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so is let's maybe of this case, and I know you know you you've already previewed again you know lack of you know potential resources and you know also you know you know purview of a you know speaking with her daughter Angel. The, the thing that bothers me the most, and it was reported at the time of going missing as, you know, as, as being sober. Do you think 
or, or I guess what are your thoughts or what can you, what would you like to comment on about how sometimes law enforcement potentially responds to somebody who has a history of addiction being reported and missing and the comment or response is well you know they may just have fallen off the wagon or are off you know doing what they've done before and not necessarily taking the missing person's report as not I don't want to say seriously but as um immediate Sure. And I, I think I know what you're saying. And, and that's the, the frustrating thing. As we sit here today, we enjoy the benefit of a very, very clear hindsight, right? We Correct. understand back in, uh, I'm, you know, I would air quote, back in the day, things were different. And we know now that those were mistakes. Those were taking a position like that was probably wrong. And I can only speak to the way that we would look at it uh, or that we do look at it here at the division is through victimology, we never, we are never going to have a perfect victim. In fact, I don't even know how you would define a perfect victim. Everybody has something in their life that either is, um, you know, some type of a dangerous behavior or some type of a, uh, a situation that could potentially cause them to go missing. And I don't mean because of poor decisions or anything like that. Uh, I've had cases in the past where, you know, grandpa just didn't come home. Nobody knows where grandpa went, right? And so everybody's looking for grandpa. And he was found months later in a very obscure part of the road on his way to his house that everybody had said they had looked at for quite some time and never found him. And he just simply ran off the road. That's that's still a missing person case, of course, until he's found. So we look at those cases. We look at victimology. We need to understand their behaviors and their addictions, if there are any, if, you know, if we find out about those, but not necessarily to, to delay our response. Does that make sense? Just Absolutely. Because, so, and, and I have to answer that question with, as I, as I said a moment ago, back in the day, we know now, because we have such clear vision, that type of response was probably inappropriate. That was a mistake. And I'm not talking about her case. I'm talking in general, law enforcement attitude about things like that in general. We know systemically that that's a problem and we can't treat things like that, uh, these types of cases like that now. So now we look at the case in its entirety. What is going on when when the person is coming up missing? It should be taken seriously immediately. And I believe here at the division, that's what we do when we get a case, whether it's a, a cold case or even even a uh, uh, you know a recent case that, that someone turns over to us right away, we we go after it, analyzing the victimology, looking at at what in that person's life is going on, not only to better understand you know potentially what may have happened if they have just kind of disappeared for a minute, like you know oftentimes there's people do go on benders and they do disappear for various reasons and then they reappear later in life, right, or later in the week or later in the month. But we need to know that going in because that helps us to even find places to look for them or, more importantly, the circle of people that they're running in. You know, uh, if, if we have someone who's an addict who's missing, wouldn't it be logical to talk to other addicts to find out where he or she may be or when the last time they saw that person? And I hope that answers your question. I know I, I took a really long amount of your time to get there, but 
I, I will say this, and again, I'm not talking about just, just in Renee's case, I'm not speaking of that with this. I mean, in general, law enforcement's attitude has had to have changed over the last 20 years, or even probably fair to say 10 years, wouldn't you think? Um, and our response to a lot of things and, and missing persons is no different. Um, you know, we talked about addiction issues or, or, or uh, things like that, but what about mental health issues? We have to be concerned with that now. That's that's on the forefront more than ever today. Wouldn't you agree with that? 100%. Well, and, and also changing kind of the way that we talk about these issues too, right, in, in terms of, you know, person-to-first language. So it's not necessarily, you know, an addict, but a person who's experiencing addiction. It's not, you know, a homeless person. It's a person who's experiencing homelessness. And, you know, it's not a prostitute. It's a person who's in sex work. And so it definitely is fascinating how we're evolving law enforcement and many other areas too, you know, even in education and how we, you know, a person who's experiencing mental health issues instead of somebody who's mentally ill. And so, yes, I, I think that makes a lot of sense that, you know, we are starting to change the way that we identify people in terms of person first language versus, you know, labeling. And I think that's really a critical point. And thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of people will be happy to hear that especially, you know, Wyoming law enforcement is making the effort and sounds like doing the work to keep up with the times and making those changes. Well, and I think it's important to note that law enforcement acknowledges and understands, you know, we talked about mental health issues and that's the reality of the world we live in. Do we think that there's more mental health issues today than there was, say, in the 80s or in the 90s? No, but I think we are in better positions to understand them today and respond appropriately today versus in the 80s and 90s. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. I think and, the way that we treat certain certain circumstances today, people in the 80s would look at us like we're crazy. And we look back and we're like, how did you do that? <laughs> Why would you respond in that way? Right. So I, I agree. I 100% and, agree. Also in Wyoming, we have some really neat things going on with local law enforcement agencies, for example, crisis intervention teams. So I just learned this week that there's sheriff's office, for example, in Natrona County Sheriff's Office has crisis intervention training for all of their staff that has public access. So if you, you have access you know, to uh, uh, folks in the jail or you're out on the street, the sheriff's office has a goal of 100% crisis intervention training for all of their employees, as well as the Casper Police Department. That type of a goal and providing that type of training at the department's expense, that's unheard of 10 years ago. That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Definitely. It's so fascinating. Um, we're talking about the city of Cheyenne, as well as Natrona County, which is, you know, Casper. Those are re- those are, are considered our metropolises <laughs> right. of, of Wyoming. And so, you know, Torrington, where, you know, Renee was reported missing and or you know, some of these smaller communities, what are we, you know, like, are we putting forth that same effort to make sure they have the funding or the resources to be able to do the same things? Although we're bigger, we obviously experience more crime as a result of having more people, there's still crime happening and or missing, you know, people going missing in these smaller communities as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and that's the catch. It's, it's going to, we're going to see 
the impact in those larger areas first. And that absolutely goes back to where we started this whole conversation about resources, money, time, personnel, trickling down to these smaller communities, for example, Torrington. That, that's tough for these agencies. My goodness, they're, they're barely able to keep, uh, you know, now I'm not speaking, of course, about Torrington, but I'm just, in general, these smaller agencies are in such budget woes. How are they keeping the lights on, right? Let alone, right. How, are they, how are they dumping hundreds and hundreds of man hours into these missing persons or these homicide cases? How do, how do they manage that? And that's oftentimes how... Um, the division, and, and that's where the Division of Criminal Investigation could come in. We offer our services to assist them or even take the case over and work the case, which is, again, what we're doing with Renee's case, is we took that case over. Uh, the chief asked us to to dig deep into it. And as I've told you a couple of times now, that that's the one thing um, that I can share, especially about her case, is we're diving deeply into her case. We're giving it the same amount of time, effort, energy. All of our resources are going into this case, which I can speak tremendously good things about our administration uh, within the division and the attorney general's office, that they understand that those are lacking in this state with smaller agencies. Those resources are lacking. And if we're in a position here at the state to do that, then we should. We we. I, I guess I don't want to get uh, dramatic when I say this, but in a, in a way, the attitude seems to be, you know, we we owe it to some of these victims and especially some of these families to at least try. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so so as you said before and when we started is that this is an active ongoing investigation. There's going to be limited information that you can share with the public. So it's kind of a two part question. What can you currently share with us right now about the status of, you know, Renee's case, if there's anything that you can report? And then is there anything that you would ask of the public and in, in to help you, if there's anything that they can do to aid in your investigation? Out of an abundance of caution, I would share this. We have many leads that we're following up on. And it's expected that some of them will be fruitful. And it's expected that some of them will not take us very far. And that's typical and that's normal in these types of cases. We're actively doing that. We're working that. What I would ask of the public right now, especially those with have those folks that have such a keen interest in her case, number one, I love it and I really appreciate the interest in the case. But I would ask for some patience because these things just don't happen overnight. I... Uh, I was giving another interview last week and I mentioned the same thing. You know, oftentimes we find ourselves a little hamstrung with families and, and uh, friends of victims or missing because on TV, they get all their answers in 45 minutes. And unfortunately that's not the reality with, with these large investigations. It truly takes time. Uh, as an example, I'll share with you, Let's say we're, we're working with a technology company such as Facebook or Apple or Google or something like that. And we have to get our information from them through a legal process, which is oftentimes a, a search warrant, right? So once we apply for and are granted the search warrant through a court of jurisdiction, then we supply that and, and we, uh, we serve that order on one of the tech companies, well, when Wyoming law says, you know, they need 
to respond within a certain amount of time. But the tech companies generally don't, you know, they're located in New Jersey or Palo Alto, California or anywhere else like that. They'll respond, but it'll be at their their time frame. And I'm not kidding you. I wish I was when I told you sometimes we have their responses in days and sometimes we have their responses in months. And even worse, we've had their responses push years. Oh, my gosh. So you can imagine how if we have a very active, a very good lead that is taking us in a certain direction and it involves a tech warrant that stops us in our tracks and that case can't make it because we can't make any case related decisions without knowing that information. Right. So we don't want to go left or go right, because what if we do that and that messes up something that is coming in this information that we're getting. And that's just an example. Um, But you see where I'm going with that. So these cases take time and it, and that's why I would ask for patience. And, and I've, I've asked several people with, with Renee's case to, and I have nothing to back this up other than my word, trust me, we're working this case. There will be a solution. I don't know what that solution will be. Like I said earlier today, it might be, this is how the case is solved. And we have a, we have a good, but sad ending. It might be, this is how the case is solved. And we have a good and happy ending. You know, for example, she has been found. Or we are absolutely out of leads and now we need to look to this direction or that direction to continue working this case. But we're not there yet. We haven't, none of those are on the plate are on our plate right now. We're still working in, in all directions on her case. Wow. Goodness. You would definitely have a tough job ahead of you. <laughs> and so I, I think that's a, I think patience is definitely called for. Um, especially, you know, pre, you know, 2004, you know, it's just what a different time, what a different time and what different resources were available then to us to now. And I'm sure the backwards, you know, working backwards on this is a huge undertaking. It, it can be. And yeah, it usually is. Um, that's, that's a bit of a challenge for the investigators, but in all of our cold cases, that, that we're working now, the, the real asset that we have here in Wyoming for those cases is the investigators and the analysts and the crime lab folks that are working those cases. I assure you, I, I cannot talk highly enough about them. They're passionate, they're educated, and they're experienced. And every one of them are, are extremely competent, individuals in their field and in their specialty. And it helps me um, as, as the unit leader for our cold case unit here in Wyoming, it helps me to speak so confidently about them and these cases that we're working to sit here today and just share that with you. They are doing their job and they're doing it well and they, they enjoy it and they're passionate about it. And it's exciting to see uh, for me, anyway, it's exciting to see these cases come full circle. When we receive them, we adopt them, we work them, and then we come to a conclusion with a good solution. Agent Hansen, thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule, and you know, and all the you know just in-depth work that you're doing, and and speaking with me uh, for Unsolved Wyoming. I really appreciate it, and I think you know, folks will be you know happy to hear how 
much passion you have about speaking about this case and not just about this case, about, about, about the work you do. And I think, you know, I can say on, for most people, thank you so much for, for carrying that type of fire into what it is that you're doing for cold cases and for families. Well, you're, you're very welcome. I appreciate that, but I, I want to, I want to just tell you, it's, it's not just me. There is an entire team of folks that are working on these cases uh, within the division and they are phenomenal people. And that's honestly, Renee, that's the reason I can sit here and speak to you so confidently is because of the, the confidence I have in their work and the things that they're doing, because they're the real rock stars in these types of things. You know that, right? They're the ones who are out there, boots on the ground, digging in the proverbial trenches to come up with these answers for the families and for the victims. And um, I think we're really lucky to have that here in Wyoming because there's some states that don't. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm sure that that is, uh, gosh, I, I know, I know how true that is just from all of the true crime documentaries that I, that I watch. And so, yes, I know that is incredibly true that, yes, some, some cases will never, ever be solved because there just isn't a dedicated team and or the resources to, to be able to work on them. So Wyoming is, is very grateful and is uh, in good hands, it sounds like. As always, here is the update with Desiree Tinoco. Hi, Desiree. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, just wanted to check in for our weekly update. Can you uh, tell us what's going on with DCI this week? Sure. So we have two resolved cases, five new cases, and there are family members of two individuals that have asked for help on the Missing People of Wyoming Facebook group that haven't yet been added to DCI's database, but they are verified. That's incredible. I'm glad that people are taking it upon themselves to reach out to the group. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to see that. I'm happy to help the families. And, you know, obviously all of our members, uh, they do a great job getting uh, getting the word out there. Fantastic. Well, let's start with those closed cases. So we have two closed cases from Natrona County. Uh, two families are asking for help. There's a missing boy from Gillette, a runaway, CJ Larson, last seen June 30th. If you have any information, please contact their police department at 307-682-5155. And the family of Julie Becker is asking for help. She's another runaway. Last seen on July 4th. She has long brown hair, brown eyes, approximately five foot and 90 pounds. And she has medical conditions. If anyone has any information, please contact Casper PD at 307-235-8278. All right. And what about those DCI cases that have opened? Sure. So Franklin Fairley, age 14, was last seen June 24th in Natrona County. He's a white male, approximately 5'5", 110 pounds, with brown hair and eyes. He was last seen wearing a blue shirt, army green pants, and has a scar on his left cheek, upper lip, and nose. Anyone with information, please contact the Natrona County Sheriff's Office at 307-235-9282. Miles Jensen, age 23, was last seen June 24th in Casper. He's a white male, approximately 5'10", 165 pounds, with blue eyes and blonde hair. He has three letters backwards tattooed on his arm, Zua on his right arm, and tattoos on his chest, feet, arms, and legs. He was last seen wearing dark gray hoodie, 
light jeans, and a blue t-shirt. He may have glasses. Anyone with information, please contact Casper Police Department at 307-235-8278. Donovan Miller, age 15, was last seen June 27th in Casper. He's a white male, approximately 5'8", 130 pounds, with brown eyes and hair. He was last seen wearing a black hoodie, black pants, and blue skater shoes with a black hat that reads Washington in pink lettering. Anyone with information, please contact Casper Police Department at 235-8278. Amy Ortiz, age 16, was last seen in Cheyenne on June 28th. She's a Hispanic female, approximately 5'2", 140 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. Her hair is dyed red at this time. She was last seen wearing a gray hoodie, black sweatpants with Mickey Mouse on them. She has a tattoo on the inside of her wrist that reads M-C-M-L-X-X-X-I-I, and it has a pierced nose. Anyone with information, please contact the Cheyenne Police Department at 307-637-6500. Harmony Hopes, age 17, was last seen in Casper on June 29th. She's a white female, approximately 5'4", 150 pounds, with brown hair and eyes. She may have been last wearing a black t-shirt and black sweatpants. She has a birthmark on the left side of her back. She also has a nose piercing and may have glasses. Anyone with information, please contact the Casper Police Department at 307-235-8278. And of course, with all cases, you can contact Wyoming DCI at 307-777-7181. They also have the option on their website to submit tips anonymously. Well, thank you, Desiree. I really appreciate it. I don't think we have any other updates to go over. Is there anything that you want to say to folks? Oh, that's all. Thank you so much. Uh, And to the community, I really appreciate all the assistance. Awesome, Desiree. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much. There is one last update that I wanted to share. There has been more details that have come in on the Irene Gakwa case in terms of the metal barrel that we hear about. And so we actually have colors that they're specifically looking for. So they are looking for a gray and red metal Phillips barrel. And so if you are in that area, again, in Campbell County, a gray and red metal Phillips barrel, there is going to be another search party. It's search three. It's going to be happening July 16th at 7 a.m. If you need any more information, please contact me and I can get you in touch with that group who's organizing that. Thank you. Folks, I know there's a lot of moving pieces in this case, so I wanted to do a quick recap. I'm referring to both the information from Jess and Jen Kosher's Cowboy State Daily's article, Woman Won't Give Up on Seeking Justice on Torrington's Only Unsolved Missing Persons Case. Renee went missing August 10th, 2004, 12 days before she was set to marry Josh Mentor. Mentor's statement to police is that she left with a grocery sack full of clothing and wouldn't say where she was headed. Two days later, Renee's white 1987 Subaru station wagon was found at a rest stop between Cheyenne and Torrington. Inside the car, Renee's keys, cell phone, purse containing her wallet, checkbook, and other items were found. Not found was Renee's clothes, tattoo kit, or any money. Renee was 24 years old when she went missing 18 years ago, making her 42 today. She is 5'8", 
140 pounds, blue eyes, and brown hair. She also has a number of tattoos. If you have any information, please contact Private Investigator Amanda Wardron, 307-797-0363, the We Help the Missing tip line, 866-660-4023, or DCI at 307-777-7181. Thank you for joining me. And from what Agent Hansen said in his segment, I hope to have an update for you soon. And folks, go find yourself a Jess Oaks. We all need one.